Just a quick note. I know I have a few listeners in some of the affected areas from Hurricane and Tropical Storm Ian. My thoughts and definitely my prayers are with you. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. When someone walks in on you in the bathroom, when you find a bear heading toward your picnic basket, When someone tells you something hard to believe, what do all these things have in common? Well, I mean, if you looked at the title of this episode, you'd know, right? (laughs) These are all times you'd say, get out of here. Well, it turns out there's a lot of that going on these days, and uh, not all for good reasons, you know, like those I just mentioned. On today's episode, first we're going to call the shots, thank you very much, then at long last we'll find, or more accurately be told our place in this world, and finally we'll learn about the formal process to remove a scoundrel from hither, allowing him to pursue his existence thither. So, remember to jiggle that mouse every few minutes, don't make me wrap those knuckles with this ruler, and practice hanging your head in shame. Because, go on, get on out of here, we go. Ever since 15 days to flatten the curve started, and continued on for the first 365 of those days, comments of, things will never be the same, became more and more common. Now, it's hard to say what life will be like whenever the 15 days actually end. I mean, for everyone. For most people, it's been over for a long, long time, as the vast majority of humans have been able to noodle out that, uh, you know, life will go on, despite the constant fear porn and berating of those of us that refuse to just go along. But so far, it seems like this is a true statement. There are still a percentage of people that believe masks can stop a virus. There are those that stare daggers at you if you get too close to them. Those that count down the days until the next vaccine comes out like a a kid waiting for Christmas. And one of the weirdest things that, that literally shouldn't be a thing at all, people that are employed by their employer, you know, the person or company that's exchanging them money for their contribution to the success of the business, they're dictating the terms of coming back into work. Is is this not just the inmates running the asylum? You know, the, the, the kids running the house, the cart leading the horse. How is it that the worker gets to make the rules? Now, for about a year and a half, I was a non-essential worker, meaning I could and was required, for a time at least, to work from home. I'll admit it's a little unnerving to be termed a non-essential worker, eh, but I've seen me, so, you know, I I get it. Anywho, my job involves a lot of butt-in-seat computer time. I, I do a lot of data collection, a lot of data analysis, setting up systems and maintaining databases, so my presence at the job site wasn't really all that crucial. That said, toward the end of 2021, with some business division sales and acquisitions and parent companies changing hands, my location didn't change, but I moved from being a reliability engineer for two different manufacturing facilities with the same company to only one of the plants with the new company. 
With that change came a change to who I reported to, and it came with some slight modification to my role, which really necessitated me being on site. Now, don't get me wrong, I wasn't afraid to go in, and I did go in on various occasions as needed, but overall I was homebound, which as an introvert, that suited me just fine. My plan, as it was only a month or so before Christmas and New Year's and everything, was just to finish off the year in my comfy pants at the house and then start 2022 fresh by going back in and gracing them with my presence. Or at least, you know, one of those, one of those two things. My new boss, however, told me that she needed me to come back to the office in the next week or two. So, you know me by now, being blunt and somewhat opinionated like I am, you know what I told her? Oh, I looked at her, I says, I said, well, I didn't look at her, I wasn't. I says, I says, okay, I'll be in on Monday. See, she doesn't sign my check, but boys, does she control my eligibility to receive said check. And as I'm fond of food and fuel and electricity, as well as heavily conditioned air, and with an Amazon wish list that's practically begging for a long-lost uber-wealthy relative's passing, I figured, ah, what the heck, I might as well, you know, do what my employer wishes for me to do. Now, I apparently was very stupid. I, I had no idea that I actually held all the cards, that I could have dictated the terms of my triumphant return, undoubtedly earning the respect and admiration of my colleagues for figuratively folding my arms and holding my breath like a small child until I got my way. But more and more stories are coming out now about employers demanding their employees return to work, giving them a deadline to return by, threatening action, while the employees decide, um, no. But now, now we have the answer. Found on CNBC.com headline, the number one perk that will bring Gen Z and millennials into the office, according to Microsoft. Ah, perks. See, I always thought the paycheck to enable one to survive in the world was kind of a good perk. <laughs> but apparently I was wrong. So the opening sentence, uh, I'll admit, it makes me angry. Uh, quote, some companies are sparing no expense to lure people back to the office, offering perks from private concerts to free massages. Uh -huh. Excuse me? I mean, I'm not angry because I want those things. This is angering because, um, why? Why are we offering perks? But then that goes to their second sentence, quote, Others are taking a more authoritarian approach, mandating employees return to the workplace or risk losing their job. Oh, well, there we go. So let me be clear. I don't believe that employers can just dictate everything. You know, just, I don't know, trying to think of an example. Here, let me grab one out of thin air. Like, say, if they tried to force you to inject yourself with, you know, various chemicals, I don't think their rights extend to your innards. But work location and work hours and job duties and compensation, those sorts of things almost seem like they're at the purview of the employer rather than just um, up for negotiation. Apparently, though, per a study, even with the threats and the bribes, only about 47% of offices are occupied. And apparently that's less than desirable. And it's because people are literally being asked or told to come back to the office and they're just refusing, which, as I said, it seems just amazing to me. I mean, we, we are literally living in a clown show here. But Microsoft, 
They've solved the riddle. They surveyed 20,006 full-time employees around the world to ask the employees what would get you back into the office. So what do you think would be their motivator? Right? We have 84% all agreed on something. What do you think they all agreed on? You think maybe free stuff? Maybe a, a substantial raise or extra vacation? Flexible work hours, those are nice. No, if you thought any of those things, you're a dumb, dumb, dummy, like like I was. No, 84% said, quote, they would be motivated to go into the office if they could socialize with their coworkers. And then another 70% said they'd, quote, go to the office more frequently if they knew their work friends or direct team members would be there. So then they go into a discussion of why social connections are important and how the pandemic has made us all siloed and lonely. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I get that. But I have some questions here. So first, is work there for you to improve your social life or to exchange labor for money? Now, I'm not saying you can't be social. That's fine. But that's not why you go to work. You work at your job because your job is to work. Next, did Microsoft really look at the phrasing? Because the way that CNBC reports this, the 84% and the 70% they mentioned didn't say they'd really come back to work. The 84% said that they'd be motivated to go in. Well, that, that's wonderful and everything, but I'm motivated to do a lot of things until it's about that time to do them. And then I generally think, yeah, I can probably do that tomorrow. And the 70% said that they'd go in more frequently. Not that they'd return to the office, that they'd just go in more frequently. Well, what exactly does that mean? If you're starting from a frequency of, oh, I don't know, let's say zero times per year, then technically once per year is more frequent, right? These are non-committal answers. It's more of a negotiation than it is a commitment here. Next, the idea of working from home started as either an I'm scared to come to work thing or I believe I have a higher risk or something like that. Or like myself, we were told to work from home and let's kind of see what happens. But it quickly morphed into I don't want to go back to the office. And, and that just doesn't seem like it's an acceptable answer to me. Now, did they ask about their social interaction on their own time? Are they socializing with their coworkers while working in their basement? It seems to me that if socializing is the most important thing and work is the only place they can see another human, they would have gone in as soon as they were given the all clear. And then are they socializing outside of work with either coworkers or other people? If so, wouldn't that mean that they're not as lonely as they're leading on and, and that maybe they can come back to work and, I don't know, do their work without the added bonus of scheduled play dates with the coworkers? Heidi Brooks, a senior lecturer at Yale School of Management, so, you know, someone that has her finger directly on the pulse of the real working world, said, quote, we don't just work for the sake of productivity or transactional reasons like being able to pay our bills. We also work because it's meaningful to us and brings us a sense of belonging to something larger than ourselves. Social connection enlivens and animates those feelings of belonging and joy. Okay, is, is that true? And if, if there is truth to that, which maybe there is, what's our priority here? 
Because if productivity for what you're being paid isn't high enough because you're focused on your work joy and feelings of belonging, the next step is unemployment because of, you know, company bankruptcy. These other things are nice, and and the group I work with, we have a good time, but bottom line, we have our jobs to do, and ain't nobody else going to do them. So if we don't do it, it ends with none of us needing to worry about going into the office anymore. Now, Brooks goes on to say that the workers might be feeling a lot of pressure to be, quote, serious, productive, and valuable, you know, when they're back working in the same general area as their boss. Um, Okay, so were they not serious, productive, or valuable while working at home? Because I worked with a guy that was none of those things while working from home. He was given the opportunity to pursue his dreams, just not with our company. I won't say that every day I worked at the house was my best effort, but I can't say that about every day at the office either. I mean, some days are more productive than others. That's just kind of how it goes sometimes. But I can honestly say that the effort, the seriousness with which I took my job, my productivity, my value to the company was the same at home as it was and is in the office. The main reason being, that's my job. That's what they're paying me to do. Now, I do agree that a happy, cohesive team is a good thing. I've worked in that environment. I currently work in that environment. I've also worked in more of a hostile type environment. Uh, Yeah, and I definitely recommend the former, you know, if you have the choice. But Brooks has given the final quote of the article here, quote, we spend a lot of our time at work and increasingly so the office. Shouldn't work be an enjoyable, meaningful part of our lives? Well, Heidi, I mean, that would be great. Yes. But again, priorities here. Doing the job you agreed to in, in trade for the amount of money they agreed to pay you. That's what takes priority. If you do that and you find it enjoyable and meaningful, all the better. And if you don't find it to be those things, either change jobs or change careers or just suck it up and deal with it, something. But making work a social club isn't the answer. That's foolishness. Now again, we're seeing the effect of a world increasingly disconnected from the principles that are laid out in the Bible. We all know that Paul told the church at Thessalonica, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I'm not sure we'd even really need to go farther than that. But for those that are working and refuse to obey the direct order to come back to work, as there's literally no objection that can carry any water as to why someone would flat out refuse to go back in, not anymore. Well, how do we handle that? What does the Bible tell us? Well, this comes down to the relationship between the master and the slave, or or the master and the hired servant. And just to be clear, there were very strict rules for owning slaves. There were legal penalties for mistreating slaves. Slavery, as spoken about in the Bible, is rarely referring to what we all envision as slavery today. That said, even if it was the same, the concept of master and slave extends to employer and employee regardless, so we need to take heed. I think Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 is probably a great place to go here. That that reads, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. 
serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So help me out here. Where exactly in that passage does the part about slaves refusing to obey the master come in? And did I miss the part about the negotiation? Now, employees aren't slaves. There are limits as to what the master, the employer, can ask or tell you to do. In fact, there are a lot of limits on that. But in the context of this article, you know, hey, come back to the office like you used to so we can get back to normal, that doesn't seem like it's one of those limits. Also, not being slaves, we, the employee, can leave anytime we want. We can seek out a new master at a new job, maybe one we enjoy more with, with a new master that we are more compatible with. We have that option, and that's fine and good to know that you can exercise your option. But when we find that master, we are obligated to work for him as if working for the Lord. We are to work in a manner that would please Christ, a hard worker, full of integrity, displaying the love of God by our actions and our attitudes. And this is why we're seeing this rebellion by work-from-home employees. Our foundation of true truth, moral, biblical truth, has been eroded away. And in its place, we've wedged in self. It's no longer, how can I glorify God through this job? Now it's, what can I get for me? So let me challenge you. And as always, I'm challenging myself also here. If you're one of those work-from-home people that's telling your employer that you will not come back to the office without a good reason, I'd strongly suggest you read your Bible, repent for your self-focused ways, and get back into work. If you're a Christian, keep in mind that no matter where you work, you should be doing so in a manner to and with a focus on bringing glory to God. Our work ethic, our productivity, our integrity, our attitude, and so much more should all be done for the glory of God. So, when next you punch the time clock or log into your computer, pause to remember, think about it, you're working for Christ. And then proceed to show your employer the God-honoring work ethic that's demanded and joyfully undertaken by a professing Christian. In all things, the Christian should be different than the world. Work is no exception. So, let's show them. Oh man, I don't want to do this one. I save a lot. I mean a lot of articles that I think may be good for me to prattle about. I filter through them later, sometimes reading the full article and deciding, eh, not really podcast worthy. And every once in a while, I come across an article like this and think, in 15, 20 minutes, eh, 25 minutes, yeah, we'll see. There's no way I can do a review justice. I'm going to leave out a lot, but boy, I think this one is definitely worth discussing. So as we get started, let me give you two recommendations. One, click the link in the notes and read the entire article. I'm going to try and cover as much as I can, but you have got to read this in full context to really get the tone and the disdain for you and I of this author. Number two, this is a direct warning to my sister and people like her. Go weed the garden. Read a good book. Take a nap. Don't listen to this one. And people with similar personalities and beliefs as my sister, you may want to sit this one out as well. Now, how do you know if this applies to you? 
Well, let's start here. Found on Time via MSN.com headline, Parents should have a voice in their kids' education. But we've gone too far. (laughs) If you've just stopped what you're doing, felt your face flush, and said out loud, Oh no, she didn't just say that. Or something in the same vein as that, yeah, my, my statement applies to you. And when I say she, I mean the author, not not me. I've, I've not changed my pronouns. Like I said, I don't want to do this either, and you've been warned, but soldier on, we must. So, first the author, one Ms. Suzanne Nosel, the CEO of PEN America, quote, the leading human rights and free expression organization. Okay, well, that's not a bad thing in itself, necessarily. She seems to fancy herself a champion for absolute, total free speech for everyone, including work she's done in Hong Kong, China, Myanmar, Eurasia, and the U.S. She was previously the COO for Human Rights Watch, a left-wing organization, executive director of Amnesty International USA, that a left-wing organization, and she served under Presidents Obama and Clinton, although I should be careful about using that exact phrasing and Bill Clinton in the same sentence. I could be taken wrongly. She publishes articles for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, and others, all of those being left-wing media organizations. Are we sensing a pattern here? She also served on the board of directors for the Tides Foundation and was a senior fellow for the Center for American Progress. Both of those are George Soros-funded and associated Marxist America-hating think tanks. She has a book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. And that sounds like a great title, but per the chapters, I... I kind of have some questions. Now, look, I'm not going to buy or read this book because it's not worth my time. But she seems to say we should have free speech completely and totally, and it shouldn't be limited by anyone, including government. But we may want to limit it some, you know, for hatred. But you should limit your speech. Just don't say those things that are deemed hateful. That's kind of the vibe I'm getting. But I'm probably wrong. I mean, it's got a lot of endorsements that she's proudly displaying in the book, including a former president of the ACLU. And look at this, Hillary Rodham Clinton. I I know her. What do you know? Salman Rushdie, you know, the author of the Satanic Verses. He says this is, quote, an authoritative, essential book. Well, if someone from ACLU and a Satan worshiper and Salman Rushdie, I'll recommend it, right? See what I did there? Okay, so this is the person we're dealing with, right? Now, remember, free speech for all. That's her bag, baby. To start, I'm going to read her opening paragraph, as that kind of sets up the tone of the article fairly well. Quote, As kids return to school, the focus on math, science, and reading has been sidelined by campaigns mounted in the name of, quote, parents' rights. Advocates are demanding that books be banned from curricula and school libraries, targeting teachers and administrators based on viewpoints, and fighting for control of educational boards. There is no question that parents deserve a say in shaping their children's educations. They have moral and legal responsibility for their children and the freedom to make fundamental decisions for their families. But the rallying cry of, quote, parents' rights is being wielded to do far more than give parents their rightful voice. It is turning public schools into political battlegrounds, fracturing communities, and diverting time and energy away from teaching and learning. (laughs) Okay, deep breath. First of all, 
quote, parents' rights aren't a theoretical thing here. It's not a concept. Children are given to parents by God. Parents don't have rights. We have the the charge, the mandate to care for, discipline, love, raise, and train them up in the way that they should go, specifically with biblical principles and truth in mind. Now, the fact that many parents refuse to do some or all of these things, the the fact that we all fall short in all of these areas, the fact that children will not follow the way they've been trained all the time doesn't change as fact. And in the world we live in today, this extends to guardian, right? If a parent isn't in the picture, the guardian takes over. No, what should be put in the quotes should be teacher's rights, as they have literally no rights over our children. They have a job. They obtained the education they chose to obtain to take the job they're currently in. They're getting paid to teach the basics of education, maybe even higher levels of education, but without bias, without indoctrination, without personal opinions, and without their personal lives or their personal sex lives encroaching into the job. The teachers and administrators literally have zero rights over our children, except for those that are granted temporarily by the parents. This fact also addresses the misconception that parents only have a say in a child's education. She's correct. We do have moral and legal rights over our children. And if we're seeing immoral activity in schools or we're witnessing flat-out lies being taught to our children, our mandated, by God, responsibility must necessarily kick in. Second, Parents are fighting against issues such as the militant, evil, transgender indoctrination of our children. Boards of education that seem to feel that they, in fact, have some sort of rights over our kids. Critical race theory and anti-racism, which is one of the most racist things that we've had to deal with in this country in decades. Teaching children that if you're white, you're evil. If you're black, you're too oppressed and stupid to be anything unless the government helps you. We're fighting districts thinking that they have the right to force our children to mask off their airways, despite the actual science, as opposed to whatever agenda-driven faux science the CDC et al. and our moronic leadership is using. They're fighting the teaching of a false history, eliminating real history in the process in order to feed into the racist narrative. And they're fighting against stupid theories like Common Core Math that taught kids that if they feel that they're right, ah, yeah, you're right. Need I go on? See, if teachers just taught math and actual science and historical facts, good or bad, parents, like when I was a kid, wouldn't really say much. But these days, we have these freaks of nature with mental issues that are so insecure in the degenerate life choices they've made for themselves, they must try to convince kids that they're supposed to be teaching to be just like them. This is why the cries of grooming have become louder in recent days. Now, don't get me wrong. I do realize, you know, with the 24-7 media and social media presence, that these fights, these battles that are going on, they don't appear to be pervasive, at least not the bulk of them. We see a handful of districts and education boards. We see a small percent of the total of teachers that are active groomers in the classroom. We see only some districts that push to adopt the critical race theory and similar garbage. There are very good districts and very good boards and very good teachers, Christian or not. And there are very good schools across the country. But this is her focus, and understanding that the slippery slope is real, it will be our focus as well. 
So to respect your time and mine, I want to give you some quick snippets of who this author, Suzanne Nossel, is, and then we'll hit her main point in writing this train wreck. She's a parent of a 2022 graduate and an incoming sophomore. She says she has no problem with parents expressing opinions about what's going on in the classroom. <laughs> She's so good to us. In fact, back when her son was in elementary school, he felt uncomfortable having to sing religious songs, quote, for an elementary school holiday show. She can't even say Christmas, so she objected to the teacher. During COVID, she, quote, registered her views vociferously with school leaders. You know, her displeasure about how much in-person learning her kids were missing. She seems to think that the parents' rights to address issues stops with the parent-teacher conferences, the PTA meetings, and calls to the principal. The fact that there are organized groups, believe it or not, like Moms for Liberty, bunch of terrorists, that would dare push back on the education system bothers her tremendously. Now, she worked for the Tides Foundation and Center for American Progress and, and other similar ones I didn't name, but Moms for Liberty, those are the ones that we need to be careful of. Okay, got it. As she says, quote, their aim is to activate parents to contest what is taught in the classroom, what books are available to students, and the professional authority of teachers, administrators, and librarians to carry out their work. Uh, no, Suzanne, the teachers don't have authority to indoctrinate our kids with whatever they want to do. Their authority comes from their employer, the taxpayer, the parents. That's the problem. They've overstepped the authority granted to them by the social contract between teachers and parents. And then she goes into a very snarky view of homeschooling, basically doing what the Marxists on the left always do, you know, paint them as backward, eh, kind of Amishy, religious zealots. Eh, they, they really kind of just need to keep their views to themselves and their little house on the prairie backward life. She doesn't say exactly that. I mean, not quite. Yeah, but she's saying that. And then she points out the danger of groups like parentalrights.org that worked in Florida and Georgia to get a parent's Bill of Rights passed. Now, look, I've said this before. I don't like it when the left usurps the term Bill of Rights. I don't like it when the right does it either. We don't need to call everything a Bill of Rights. We need to leave that as a single governing document and call these things something else. But whatever, that's not a battle I'm going to win, so whatever. But she says that these Bill of Rights, quote, impose heavy administrative burdens on teachers, making it easier for individual parents to challenge curricular materials for all students in a school district and target LGBTQ plus affirming practices. Okay. Okay, so no, if the teachers in the schools are teaching the same type of educational information they've been teaching for decades and centuries, you know, the classic three R's, then we don't have a problem. Now, I'm sorry that it makes it hard for some pervert to indoctrinate children in his classroom. Maybe if he just kept his personal life to himself and taught the multiplication tables, maybe he'd be relieved of this self-imposed burden of perverting and grooming our children. You know, for example, see, parents that are fighting all of this garbage, this apparent mission from Satan that these woke, mentally ill adults are trying to carry out, aren't imposing anything. They're rolling back the idea that somehow was released into our schools, that the most important thing you can do as a teacher is be a mentor, a role model, a guide, if you will, to the same point of deviancy they find themselves. 
I say again, they do this at least in part because they are so awkward and uncomfortable with their own life choices, they know deep down that what they're doing and what they believe is counter to anything that makes sense, counter to nature itself in many cases, and they need constant affirmation that they're right. And with about 30 impressionable minds in front of them, they have easy targets for the ego boost that they require. Skipping a bit, and like I said, you really need to take the 10-15 minutes and read the article. She says, quote, These tactics also risk denying and defeating a children's own sense of educational and intellectual agency. Efforts by parents to dictate what books their teens read and subjects they study stand in the way of allowing children to develop the autonomy and judgment they will need in adulthood. Schools should breed critical thinking such that no book or lesson has the power to indoctrinate a worldview. A major purpose of a library, a broad curriculum, and of the protection of free speech itself is the notion that exposure to the panoply of available ideas and narratives is what enables us to form and test our own opinions and beliefs. Um, okay, how about no? The job of the parent isn't just to throw the kid in the middle of the pool and see what they'll do. Again, we are to train our children. As Christians, our job is literally to indoctrinate our children with Christianity. That word is not always negative. If you're flooding them with true truth, then indoctrination is a good thing. I can speak of multiple people that I know that have had issues in their lives, that have had very hard emotional issues in their lives that are not only still on this planet today, but also still Christians, because they not only knew and understood their Christian faith, but also knew and understood what the world wants them to believe, and they understood the difference between the two and the obvious lies and insanity of the world's view of this life, which leads them back to God, to the true truth. Now, believe it or not, her main point is the so-called banning of books. Remember, she's a free speech expert and advocate, as long as it comports with what she feels should be free, so, you know, police yourself carefully. This is one of the focuses, focusi, of her current organization, PEN America. PEN is in all caps. That's why I'm assuming you yell it. So she makes the claim in the article that, quote, in Florida, Missouri, Georgia, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and other states, campaigns have spurred the passage of new laws to limit the availability of books in schools, sometimes under penalty of steep fines for teachers or punishments for librarians. PEN America, the organization I lead, has documented more than 2,500 book removals in the nine months between July 2021 and June 2022 in our new report. Now, I mostly ignored her new report and went straight to the data set, although to be honest, they're somewhat transparent about their data, so I did use their topic breakdown in that report. It's, um, subpar, but it's something. But to start, let's put the more than 2,500 books in perspective, shall we? First, it's it's not actually 2,500 books, it's 1,648 books. So that drops her concern down by a third. I mean, just boom, right off the bat. This is because some books are banned in multiple places and some in many locations, which uh, that should probably tell you something. And of these 1,648 books, there are 1,149 authors involved. So that means that some authors are just getting slammed, and that should also tell you something. Second, regarding the states, notice that she called out Florida, Missouri, Georgia, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah. What's clearly implied by what she said? 
And that's only naming six of the 32 states that have enacted these bans. Some states that may shock her that she ignored are Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, and Vermont, and others. It's basically a mix of traditionally red and blue states, which is what you should expect, you know, if, if parents aren't neglecting their duties. That This kind of goes beyond party, or at least it should. Now, third, this encompasses 132 school districts. There are over 13,000 districts in the United States. So this is 1% of the districts that are enacting these alleged bans. Now, I know from the ongoing super pandemic of COVID death that a 1% death rate means we should all panic, run to untried chemical injections, stifle our breathing because science, etc. But in the old days, a 1% rate wasn't really a thing to panic about so much. Fourth, she makes it sound like the parents are just rushing the schools and boards, carroning at the top of their Karens to force the school to ban books or face their wrath. But when you look at the origin of the challenge, we see that of the 2,532 total so-called bans in the 32 states and 132 districts, 2,383 of them, or 94%, have been brought by an administrator. Okay, only 143, or 6%, are from a formal challenge. Now, I'm not sure what administrator means exactly. They don't define it. But I know a complaining parent would not directly be called an administrator. So even if a parent or parents were involved, this went through some channel before the book was formally challenged. And fifth, she fails to tell you that out of the 2,532 books, 32 states, 132 districts, what's up with the 32s, that 1,375 or 54% are currently under review. They're not actually banned yet, they're just challenged. And when removing duplicates of books banned in multiple locations, we come out with 867 unique books across the classrooms and libraries in the entire public school system that have been challenged, reviewed, and banned. So, moving to their report, what kinds of books are being banned? And understand, I can't see their classification. It's not in their data set, so I don't know what books fall into what category. I'm going to go out on a limb and say some of these classifications could probably use a bit more fleshing out. You'll see what I mean. And so out of the 1,648 unique books, and realize this report will classify some titles as more than one thing. So the percentages I give you, they're not going to add up to 100. 41% are explicitly LGBTQ plus in nature with specifically transgender themes accounting for nine of the 41%. 40%, quote, contain protagonists or prominent secondary characters of color. Now, the implication, of course, is that the homeschool religious zealots and activist organizations hate the black man. Now, I can unequivocally tell you that there isn't a title that was challenged or accepted for challenge because the main character was a black person. Not one. I guarantee it. She and they so want the right and the Christians to be racist. That's just, they have to have that. And it's always been the left of the political spectrum that's been the racists. Always. 21% quote, directly address issues of race and racism. Okay, same comment as previous, but this one is probably a lot of critical race theory and anti-racism garbage. 22% quote, 
contained sexual content of varying kinds, including novels with some level of description of sexual experiences of teenagers, stories about teen pregnancy, sexual assault, and abortions, as well as informational books about puberty, sex, or relationships. Hey, I mean, enough said about that one, right? Uh, 10% deal with, quote, rights and activism. Oh, I bet they do. 9% are biographies, autobiographies, or memoirs. Now, I can't speak to these because I'm not entirely sure, but being a Glenn Beck listener, I know, I know, I know that one author he has as a guest a few times a year has written a number of biographies, historical biographies, and he's been subject to bans or very, very extended reviews of his books by the school and or librarian because of his political views, not because of the book, because of his political views. Eh, just saying. And then 4% have to do with religious minorities like Jewish, Muslim, and others. So looking at all this data, I'd say that the system seems to be doing okay. And if anything, we parents are maybe just a little too lenient on the schools, allowing them a bit too much freedom to wander. A public library can do what they want, although my tax dollars, yes, I know, it contributes to that. But for the most part, I don't care. Stock up your shelves with trash that most people don't want. Whatever. But a school, public or not, is different. These are our children that we're handing over for many hours a week with the understanding that my child will be protected and safe and won't be nudged in a direction I don't choose for them. But according to Suzanne, I guess I'm wrong. Remember, we don't want to hold our children back. God forbid we train up our children. Or wait, no, 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 no. God demands we train them, not just, you know, let them figure things out all on their own for the sake of autonomy. She then talks about how we're seeing the same tensions in society and that maybe our fears are kind of old-fashioned, which heightens, quote, the impulse of parents to shield their children from what seems like alien social forces and values. <laughs> Ooh, scary. But this is really kind of silly as the world we live in is so interconnected and international and some parents that just feel they can't manage everything are running to the schools to yell at them since that's something they feel like they can control. Even worse, quote, self-proclaimed parents' rights organizations play on those fears. They have turned their backs on time-honored modes of dialogue and partnership between parents and schools, stoking the belief that the threats they perceive demand government intrusion. Oh, oh man, and, and that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, if there's one thing we all know is that the right-leaning Christian people run to government to solve their problems almost every time. So she, remember, super interested in free speech for everyone, has given us the boundaries that we as parents are allowed in her mind. Quote, in an era of intensifying polarization and fragmentation, public schools are among the few unifying institutions with the potential to help solder together a diverse rising generation of Americans ready and equipped to live together, solve problems, and help build a better nation. If parents are worried about the books their children may find in school, they can speak to a teacher or librarian and, even more importantly, engage with their child about the values and stories they wish to emphasize. The phrase, quote, parents' rights, may have a nice ring to it, but the agenda now afoot in its name should sound alarms for all those who care about the future of public education. Oh, well, I mean, so I don't know about you, but now I'm happy to know what I'm allowed to do and the very dangerous path of damaging our public schools that I've been on. So let, let me just go ahead and get off of that path now. 
She's basically saying that the world is changing and we need to let our kids keep up with the world, even if we don't agree or if we don't understand the big, scary world. But I would argue that the fact that parents took their hands off the collective wheel because we falsely believe public schools were generally safe and don't even get me started on colleges, that's likely the reason we're in this mess that we're in now in schools, colleges, and society in general. So her solution is to not only keep those hands off the wheel, just just go ahead and take a nap. The school system is basically the autopilot of Tesla of your child's formative years. They've got this, and they definitely won't, you know, drive headfirst into a tree, causing the system to burn and burn and burn for days. I kind of think that parents should maybe get their hands, I don't know, back on the wheel. And, and there are many that think like me, or I think like them. We, we think same things. So I agree that parents' rights is a bad term. It should be more parents' mandate. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child. Ephesians 6.4, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Psalm 127.3, children are a heritage from the Lord. Matthew 18.10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Colossians 3.20, children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Proverbs 13.24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 1.8, hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Need I go on? Parents are the sole responsible party for the child. That said, Hillary Clinton was correct. It does take a village to raise a child. In fact, I would say it takes many villages. You've got family, family friends, church, extracurricular activities and teams, parents of their friends, and so on. If a friend is pushing a child in the wrong direction, if a coach is teaching a child bad things, if a pastor is teaching something other than the gospel, we take action. School is no different. They aren't sacred. They aren't untouchable. They aren't immune or autonomous. They're a provided service with a very specific task. And that's all they ever should be. And if it so happens, we find a teacher that has similar beliefs, a, a teacher we feel we can trust, a teacher that's proven to be an ally in the growth of our child, all the better. But we would be derelict in our duties, sinfully shirking our responsibilities if we just allow anyone or anything to just have carte blanche control of the children that God has given to us. Okay, now, go run some hot water, throw in a bath bomb, put on some soothing music, and just breathe. I mean, after this podcast is done, wait for that first. Then, then go do those things. So, we meet again. And welcome back to the American Genesis Part 3 of our look at the Constitution. Although on the surface, not every article or section of the Constitution may look exciting, we have enough history at this point that, uh, yeah, we can, we can find interesting facts in just about everything. So, step back into time with me to the time of our framers and understand that the system they were trying to develop, the system that we not only take for granted these days, but uh, complain about with uh, a lot of regularity, was seen as bits from here and pieces from there and principles from the Bible and some brand new ideas, all with the intent of forming a more perfect union, establishing justice, ensuring domestic tranquility, providing for the common defense, promoting the general welfare, and securing the blessings of liberty to themselves and their posterity. <laughs> That's you and me. 
The task at hand required them to tackle some very large needs, answer some big questions, fix some gaping holes in the articles, which was the law of the land at the time they were writing this, and make something that would work for a long time for all the people. They seem to do a fairly decent job. So, no point in delaying. Let's go ahead and dive in. So, Article 1, Section 3. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state chosen by the legislature thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. Immediately after they shall be assembled in consequence of the first election, they shall be divided as equally as may be into three classes. The seats of the senators of the first class shall be vacated at the expiration of the second year, of the second class at the expiration of the fourth year, and of the third class at the expiration of the sixth year, so that one-third may be chosen every second year. And if vacancies happen by resignation or otherwise during the recess of the legislature of any state, the executive thereof may make temporary appointments until the next meeting of the legislature, which shall then fill such vacancies. No person shall be a senator who shall not have attained to the age of 30 years and been nine years a citizen of the United States, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state for which he shall be chosen. The vice president of the United States shall be president of the Senate, but shall have no vote unless they be equally divided. The Senate shall choose their other officers and also a president pro tempore in the absence of the vice president or when he shall exercise the office of president of the United States. The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. When the President of the United States is tried, the Chief Justice shall preside, and no person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States, but the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Okay, so this is where we get to see the qualifications for the other part of the legislative branch, the Senate. First, as we did with the House, let's look at the qualifications. Whereas to be a representative in the House, you needed to be 25 years old and a citizen of the United States for seven years. In the Senate, you need to be at least 30 years old and a citizen for nine years. Now, identical to the House, the individual must be a resident of the state in which they're running. So the senators were supposed to be at least somewhat more wise, more seasoned, more experienced, but not necessarily political experience. See, the point of the Senate was to guide the country, keeping their state in mind. Not so much the people's interests, but the state's interests. And yes, those can and do conflict. So the framers were trying to strike a balance among the country, the individual states, and the citizens. Now, notice that the Senate was not originally set up for the senators to be voted on by the people. The legislatures of the states were to appoint two individuals to the Senate. Now, this changed with the passing of the 17th Amendment, so now the people vote in both representatives and senators. That is, unless the position is vacated midterm for some reason, and then the governor of the state can appoint someone until the next election. Now, we'll get to the 17th Amendment in time, but to me, I kind of think I'd rather go back to the old way, but at the same time, 
We're so political now that the appointment process may actually make things worse. I don't know. It seems to me that many or most politicians, left and right, are really just in it for themselves. Not the people, not the state, not the country, and more for their bank account than anything else. Now, since the Senate was originally intended to serve a function with a somewhat larger focus than the House, the senators were appointed for six-year terms rather than the two-year terms, but every two years, a third of the senators across the nation will come up for election. That's why you see lopsided voting years from the perspective of political parties. This year, 2022, for instance, appears to be a very, very bad year for Democrats, as President Vegetable has done just about everything wrong, and the Democrats seem to want to destroy pretty much everything. But the Republicans taking back the Senate will be a very difficult task because there are more Democrats not up for election this season than are. So the opportunities are very limited. Now, this system is a solid idea, though. In order to allow some continuity with how the government operates, this would stop a complete changeover of the executive and the entire legislative branch, which could have happened if this six-year rotating system wasn't set up. Also, keep in mind that although there were no term limits set up in the Constitution for anyone at all, the intent was that this was not to be a career. This was meant to be a temporary inconvenience after which you go back to your real life. <laughs> oh, how things have changed. It's funny because the framers never foresaw that anyone would want to stay in a position of governmental public service for a lifetime. This was a nuisance to them. They didn't see that changing, yeah, but here we are. So the vice president, as is still done today, is the official president of the Senate. But the VP really rarely presides over the Senate, at least not anymore. So a person is appointed to be the president pro temp. Now, today, that position isn't really taken as seriously as I think the framers probably intended, as it's usually just kind of a rotating appointment of junior senators, because the more senior senators apparently have other things that they're doing. I don't know. Mostly what we see these days is the VP making an appearance to vote in order to break a tie. With our current Senate mix that we have right now, we've seen this a number of times in the last couple of years. Okay, back to impeachment to close out Section 3. So the House, as we discussed, has the sole authority to bring articles of impeachment. Once they vote to impeach, they bring those articles to the Senate to actually conduct the trial, with the representatives from the House being the plaintiff in the impeachment case. The Senate sits as the jury, the president is the defendant with his counsel, and the chief justice of the Supreme Court is the judge. Now, there have only been four impeachments brought to trial in our history. Andrew Johnson had 11 articles of impeachment brought against him, Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase presided, and the Senate voted to acquit. Richard Nixon had the impeachment process started against him, but he resigned office and never had articles of impeachment voted on or brought against him. Bill Clinton had two articles of impeachment brought against him. Chief Justice William Rehnquist presided. The Senate voted to acquit. Donald Trump has been impeached twice, and this is where impeachment has kind of turned into a political weapon. The first impeachment brought two articles against him. Chief Justice John Roberts presided. The Senate voted to acquit. The second impeachment brought one article after Trump was already out of office. Now, nobody really knows how you can be impeached from a position you're currently not holding, but that didn't stop Nancy the Crypt Keeper Pelosi. 
Chief Justice John Roberts refused to preside as Trump was not the current president. So the president pro tempore of the Senate, Patrick Leahy, in direct contravention of Article 1, Section 3, presided over this sham witch hunt of a trial. Once again, Trump was acquitted. And I have no doubt that if Republicans take the House back over, they will bring charges against and vote to impeach Joe Biden. And with very, very good reason, I might add, as he is very compromised, and we're not talking mentally here, he and his druggy son may be literally betraying this country as we speak. I also have no doubt, due to the political makeup of the Senate, that Biden will also be acquitted. If a president were ever to be impeached, this is only to remove them from office and other future governmental-type offices. The impeachment trial is not a criminal or civil trial. However, that being said, being impeached or not also does not protect the president from being brought to trial for breaking the law. That's just done later through the justice system. Okay, let's move on to a couple other short sections really quick in Article 1. Section 4 says, The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. The Congress shall assemble at least once in every year, and such meetings shall be on the first Monday in December unless... They shall, by law, appoint a different day. Now, this is pretty basic. The states can set up elections how they deem fit, unless the Congress makes a change to the law. Basically, the election cycle is standardized. The general format of elections is standardized. But we still see that the states have a lot of freedom as to how the vote happens, where the votes can happen, the number of days of voting, early voting, how long after the election day they'll accept mail-in ballots, etc., etc. And, of course, there's a lot of contention right now about things like drop boxes, number of days of voting, etc. And, of course, there are certain groups, and I will not name the Democrat Party so as to protect its identity, that want to claim that everything that's done is racist. Now, I've said it many times. If everything is racist, then nothing is racist. But that's apparently what certain groups want to do. Just make everything racist. Moving to Section 5, we read... Each house shall be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members, and a majority of each shall constitute a quorum to do business. But a smaller number may adjourn from day to day, and may be authorized to compel the attendance of absent members in such manner and under such penalties as each house may provide. Each house may determine the rules of its proceedings, punish its members for disorderly behavior, and with the concurrence of two-thirds expel a member. Each house shall keep a journal of its proceedings, and from time to time publish the same, accepting such parts as may in their judgment require secrecy, and the yeas and nays of the members of either house on any question shall, at the desire of one-fifth of those present, be entered on the journal. Neither house, during the session of Congress, shall, without the consent of the other, adjourn for more than three days, nor to any other place than that in which the two houses shall be sitting." Okay, so basically, this is what we see today. Each House of Congress is allowed to make their own procedural rules as long as they follow the very basic outline rules laid out by the Constitution. The one thing I didn't know, and maybe you did, was that either House could vote to expel a member if two-thirds vote to do so. So I was curious. I looked it up. 
This has only happened three times in the House of Representatives, with a total of five members. In 1861, three members were all expelled for supporting the Confederate Rebellion. John B. Clark from Missouri, John W. Reed from Missouri, and Henry C. Burnett from Kentucky. In 1980, Michael J. Myers from Pennsylvania was expelled for bribery caught in an FBI sting. In 2002, James Trafficant from Ohio was expelled for, okay, here we go, 10 different counts, including bribery, conspiracy to defraud the United States, corruption, obstruction of justice, tax evasion, and racketeering. Sounds like a good guy. Now, in the Senate, this has happened three times, with a total of 15 members expelled. In 1797, William Blount from Tennessee was expelled for treason. In 1861 and 1862, 14 members were expelled for supporting the Confederacy, although one was reversed in 1877 posthumously. The 14 members were Jason M. Mason and Robert M. T. Hunter from Virginia, Thomas Lanier Klingman and Thomas Bragg from North Carolina, James Chestnut Jr. from South Carolina, Alfred O. P. Nicholson from Tennessee, William K. Sebastian and Charles B. Mitchell from Arkansas, John Hemphill and Louis Wigfall from Texas, John C. Breckenridge from Kentucky, Trustin Polk and Waldo P. Johnson from Missouri, and Jesse D. Bright from Indiana. There were also 18 others at 17 different times that had expulsion proceedings brought, but they were not expelled. Six resigned, one happened at the end of his term, one died, and the other nine were just not expelled. Now, one interesting factoid with this. Everyone that was expelled from both the House and the Senate, yeah, they were all Democrats. One was a Democratic Republican, and that group later split into mostly Democrats with a minority going to the Whig Party. So yeah, and included in that were 17 Democrats that were expelled for joining the Confederacy. You know, the pro-slavery Confederacy? Eh, isn't that interesting? I mean, despite what you're being indoctrinated with, the left, huh, big fans of slavery, and they still are today. It's just done differently for now. As for the senators that were not expelled, eight were Democrats, ten were Republicans. Of the Democrats, you had one accused of working with Aaron Burr, one accused of supporting the Confederates, one embezzlement, one corruption, one for conflict of interest, two for electoral fraud, one for bribery. One of those resigned, one resigned shortly after, and the rest were not expelled. And on the Republican side, there were four that were accused of corruption, one for intervening with a federal agency, one for being a Mormon, uh-huh, seriously, one for speaking out against joining World War I, uh, also seriously, one for electoral fraud, one for sexual misconduct, and one for financial impropriety. Out of these, four resigned, one had his term expire, the others were not expelled. So I think this is probably as a good a place as any to bring this episode to an end. Now, you know, I try to bring out a theological point in most of my podcast segments, and the Constitution is no different. That said, I don't really have anything too deep to say here. But I will say this. I know that not all the ideas the framers had for the Constitution were original. They borrowed from good systems elsewhere and tried to make them applicable and better. But the foresight the weaving together systems to work together to represent all aspects of the country and her people to keep themselves and each other in check while not enacting a tyrannical feudal system like what they had left, 
I just can't believe that God didn't guide their hands and their conversations and their minds. Although we know that the document isn't perfect, and they even left a process in place to fix things, it's sad to see the corruption of man also corrupting this document. It's these days used as needed and then ignored when case law or simple feelings needed to be ignored. So with that, I'll say join me next time as we continue our walk through the Constitution. And when you say your prayers, don't forget to pray for our country, for the protection of our Constitution, and for those in positions of power and leadership. Pray for salvation of, or for removal of, those that have hardened hearts, and for the voting public to cast their votes for those that actually care about this old dusty document and the freedom and prosperity it's brought to not only the United States, but the entire world. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.